0: Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, we're extremely grateful to have the freedom to come and worship you here today. We know that the time is coming when we will not have that opportunity. We know the time is short in this world. We pray that we may be part of your solution of helping the world understand where we are in the scheme of things. It is our task to take message to the world, so that others may also be ready for your coming. We pray that you may give us the wisdom and the strength and the power to do that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Picture two scenarios. There's a trial of a man or a woman who claims to be innocent, and as the trial goes forward, and reaches its conclusion, they are in fact found innocent and set free. Then picture a trial of a man or woman who claims to be innocent, but as the trial goes forward and reaches its conclusion, the facts show that he is guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt, and must suffer the punishment that goes with it. Now, I want to ask you a question today. What is the difference in those two scenarios? And I will tell you that I forgot to tell you, or chose not to. It's the same trial, the same facts were looked over in each case, the same law was applied to those two trials the same judge, and the same jury. But what do you see different in those? There was a totally different outcome, wasn't there? That was the only thing that was different. What about the two people in those two separate instances? How do you think they looked forward to the trial. Would they look forward to the trial in the same way? Or would they have completely different feelings as they went into that trial? One is to have his innocence proclaimed, which he was looking forward to because he knew he was innocent. And the other one was hoping that they wouldn't find out what he really did but who all along had tried to hide it. So the question comes up, how do you look at the judgment, especially the one that we talked about in Daniel, God's judgment that is taking place at this moment in heaven. I want you to take the insert that was in the bulletin, and I would just like to go over that a little bit, To help us understand, remember last week we talked about and read the verse in Amos that said, God does nothing beforehand except he warns us and tells us and sends a prophet and all kinds of things so that we know what's going on. We're not caught um, without knowing. If you go through the book of Daniel... And I was doing this the other day, and I was surprised at how many times the book of Daniel really talks about judgment. You know, normally we think about the two verses that we just read in Daniel 7. It's a picture of the judgment there, and the books are being opened. But as we go down through, every single chapter talks about some kind of judgment. And we'll get into a little later on. Uh, the people in the great advent movement back in the middle part of the 1800s not knowing exactly what Daniel 8.14 meant and yet when you go down through these chapters do you think they should have had some inkling that the whole book was about judgment? I think they, they should but as human beings sometimes we don't catch on right at first. It takes us a while, it takes us some study until we finally get the point. But let's go down through these chapters real quickly and then we'll go on to something else. Chapter 1. Judgment on Israel and the Jews. And as you go through that chapter, how did that judgment end? (laughs) Didn't end up very good, did it? Very badly. And this is a recurring theme here that you'll notice as we go down through this list. That if you are not doing what's right judgment will usually end up very badly for you if you are following God's path judgment will wind up in a much different way in a much more positive way there's also another judgment in chapter one that maybe you don't think about and I didn't put on here and that's the judgment of Daniel because remember Daniel was being judged on what on his food and on his eating habits And in fact, they were going to tell him that he couldn't do all that. And yet he persisted in what he felt was God's way. And how did that turn out for Daniel? Turned out pretty good, didn't it? In fact, he was allowed to do what he wanted to do, and it became a tremendous witnessing point that Daniel had. Chapter 2. We talked about this a little bit last week. Judgment on the nations by the stone. Remember the image? And the stone came and hit the image. And what did it do? It ground up the image into dust, you might say. So this is God's judgment on the nations being portrayed. And how did that end up? Didn't end up very good, did it? Ended up badly. Chapter 3. A different kind of a judgment. This is a judgment on the three youth for not worshiping the image that had been set up. How did that judgment end up? Ended up pretty good, at least for the youth. <laughs> you know, they, they were probably thinking at the minute uh, when it started, maybe this judgment is not going to end up too good. But it ended up great. Because they had been following God and doing what he asked them to do. And God chose at that moment to to have this judgment come out in in their favor as a witness to the kingdom. What about chapter 4? There's a judgment on Nebuchadnezzar for his pride. And how did that end up? It ended up badly too. Are you starting to get a, a sense of of what we're doing here? Chapter 5, judgment on the nation of Babylon. That ended up badly also. Chapter 6, judgment on Daniel for not worshiping the king. Again, on the face of it, it didn't sound like that judgment was going to be very good, was it? Unless you enjoy being thrown into a den of lions. Mike was afraid about the bears in the woods. Well, you know, Daniel had the same, uh, picture in his mind. He could just see these lions rushing at him. But that judgment turned out very well. Why? Because Daniel was following God's will. Chapter 7 that we just read, it's describing the judgment in heaven as happening before the second coming. How do people think about that judgment today when you talk to people in Christianity? Are they fearing the judgment, or are they welcoming the judgment? By and large, I think most people out there are kind of fearful of the judgment, aren't they? And maybe if they looked at this list, they would realize that if you're following God, you have nothing to fear for the judgment. Chapter 8. We talked about the judgment in chapter 7, now chapter 8 talks about when the judgment is going to start at the end of the 2300 years. Chapter 9, it gives us the starting date of the 2300 years. And then chapter 10, it's kind of interesting if you stop to think of it, and if you read through chapter 10, remember Daniel is uh, being visited by Gabriel. And Gabriel is saying, you know, I've been working with the princes of Persia for a little bit and uh, trying to to lead them in the right direction. Well, what is he really trying to say? If you go through, it's really trying to say that Satan was trying to stop the 2300-year prophecy from starting because he knew that when it started, 2300 years later, the judgment would start. And so if he could prevent that happening, if he could prevent the Persian kings from letting the Jews go back to Jerusalem and start this process of the 2300 years, then this prophecy wouldn't be true. But as you read chapter 10, was Satan able to stop it? No. Gabriel and Christ himself went and uh, persuaded the kings to let the Jews go back to uh, Jerusalem, to the city. And this period of time started this countdown to the judgment that was going to happen in heaven. Chapter 11, it starts with the Medo-Persian kings. And it just so happens that they're the ones who gave the decrees for this 2300 year period to start. The countdown to the judgment. And of course in chapter 12, it's the end of the judgment. The close of probation. Christ stands up. And there's going to be a time of trouble after that, and Christ will deliver his people. So as you go down through this list, and there's actually a couple other things in the chapter about judgment too. What does Daniel's name mean? Judged by God. I mean, there's so many things in this whole book that talk about this that I, I my mind is kind of boggled a little bit to think that people back in the mid-1800s trying to figure out what Daniel 8.14 meant, the cleansing of the sanctuary, that they wouldn't start understanding that had something to do with the judgment when you go through the, the whole book. It's just all through there, every little bit. I want to switch gears now, and I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation 10. And you may say, well, why are we going there? You'll find out that... What we just talked about ties in very, very closely with Revelation 10. Daniel sees in Revelation 10 a message coming from where? Where is it coming from? Heaven. Does that mean it's important? It means it's directly from God. And if you look down through here, In that same verse, it talks about a person bringing that message. It's not only coming from heaven, from God, but there's a person bringing that message. And he is described as with a cloud and a rainbow upon his head, his face as it were the sun, and his feet pillars of fire. Other places in the Bible, it uses that same description to describe who? Jesus Christ. So not only is this a message from heaven for us, but it's brought directly by Jesus. Where is this message to go? If you read in verse 2, he set his foot on the sea and on the earth. Now, what does that represent? Okay, it could represent people. But and, And that's true, specifically if you look back at the vision in Revelation 13, the sea where the first beast came out of was basically the old world, Europe and those areas. Whereas the earth was where the woman was hiding and was represented by where the United States came up. So it's in the whole world, old world, new world. This message is to go to everyone. It also says that he has a voice like a lion. Now, how many of you have ever been to Africa and heard a lion roaring? Okay. Not very many. But I bet you everyone here has gone to the zoo and heard the lion roaring, right? What does it sound like? If you were out in the woods where Mike was and you heard a lion roaring about 50 feet away, Would it get your attention? I think it would get our attention. Plus the fact that Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So we know that when Jesus is saying something here, when he has the message, he's not only coming from God with this message, but it's a message that's going to wake the whole world up. Everyone needs to listen. You know, it's kind of like that old ad on TV about uh, in stocks and investments. you know. It said, when this person talks, everybody listens. And so uh, that's how it is here. Now what does he have in his hand? He has a little book. And it's interesting that if you go through the chapter, this word little is mentioned four times. Obviously God is trying to get something across to us. It's not a huge, big book. It's a little book. Just a little book. And it said that in your, I don't know what it says in your version, but in King James it says, He had a little book open. It's a little deceiving because in the original text, it says, Having a book having been opened. That makes a big difference, doesn't it? Because if it was having been opened, what was it before? It was closed. It was sealed. And so, if this person, Christ, is coming down with this book to give to the world, and it was closed, it was sealed, but now he's opened it, what does that say to us? means the meaning or the understanding of that book had been kept away from people. It had been sealed so you couldn't really understand and get what you needed to from that. But Christ has now come down and he has opened up the understanding for that part that he wants us to understand. And so, as we go through the Bible then, the rest of the way our task is to find what? To find which part of the Bible has been sealed? Or which part of the Bible was closed so we couldn't understand it? And I want to take you to two texts. So if you go with me, keep your hand maybe here in Revelation 10. But go back to Daniel chapter 12. Chapter 12, and we're going to read verse 9 first. And he said, Go thy way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed, when? To the end of time. So at the end of time, it was going to be what? It was going to be open then. So up until that time, people could read it, they could study it, but they wouldn't really understand it very well. And then let's go back just a chapter or two to Daniel eight twenty six. And Daniel says, the vision of the evenings and the morning, which was told, is true. Wherefore, shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. Okay, now, at the first part, it said there was a vision of Daniel that was closed until the end of time. Now, here in chapter 8, he gets a little more specific. What? part of the visions that Daniel was given was to be closed up and not understood. Only that part about the evenings and the mornings in chapter 8, in other words, the 2300-day prophecy, wasn't really to be fully understood until the end of time. As we understand the 2300-day prophecy today and the words, the sanctuary to be cleansed, what does that mean? At the end of the 2300 years, the same thing that would happen in heaven as happened in the earthly sanctuary. Remember, at the end of the year, in a Jewish year, what was the last day of the year? What's that? It was the Day of Atonement. And what happened in the Day of Atonement? Okay? They had a series of things that they did that cleansed the sanctuary the earthly sanctuary from all sins and record of sins that had been brought in there for the year. So the same thing was going to happen in the heavenly sanctuary at the end of the 2300 years. The process would start whereby all the sins and the record of sins would be wiped out and cleansed and made clean. So the heavenly sanctuary would no more have any Record of sins or anything. It would all be forgotten because there was a new start. And that was pictured in the earthly sanctuary. In the middle part of the... Oh, one more thing I want to bring out about this book. If you look back in Revelation 10, what is this book about? Just to kind of reemphasize what Daniel already said. In chapter 10... Verse 11, it tells us what this little book was all about. What's the word? Prophecy. So, what is Christ coming to tell us in chapter 10 of Revelation? He's coming down and he's saying, I have a little book here with things that I have opened up now for you to understand, and it has to do about prophecy. You haven't really understood this before, but now you can. In the middle of the 1800s, there was a thing called the Advent Movement that we've heard about, I'm sure, especially if it was the Seventh-day Adventist Church. People like William Miller, Josiah Litch, Charles Fitch, Joseph Bates, Ellen White, many, many others who were of all denominations came together in a studying basically of one verse, and that's, Daniel 8.14, trying to figure out what it meant, thinking that at the end of the 2300 years, which they had figured out the date for that, that was set in stone, there was no problem with that, but they were trying to figure out what it meant. People in Europe, Isaac Newton, for one of them, was studying this. In the Middle East, people like Joseph Wolfe, in South America, a Jesuit priest, no less, studied this. All trying to figure out what this key prophecy was saying to us. And almost all of them came to the conclusion that the cleansing of the sanctuary meant Christ was going to come and cleanse this earth. They thought it was the coming of Christ. The question is what had Daniel said? Daniel in the verse that we had just read, said that the only part that was sealed had to do with the cleansing of the sanctuary. With something to do with what was going on in the sanctuary in heaven. Were all parts of Daniel sealed before the time of the end? I don't think so. In fact, if we go back to the 200s, There was a church father named Hippolytus who wrote a complete commentary on Daniel 2 and 7 and got it perfectly right. They knew what Daniel 2 and 7 were saying. Even in Daniel 8, when you read that, Gabriel explained the ram and the goat and the horns and everything so that Daniel understood that. The only thing that they didn't understand was what was going to happen. Ellen White comments in two different places. Number one in Acts of the Apostles 585. In the Revelation, talking about the book, all the books of the Bible meet and end. Here is the complement of the book of Daniel. One is a prophecy, the other a revelation. The book that was sealed is not Revelation, but that portion of the book of Daniel relating to the last days. The angel commanded, but thou, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. And then in great controversy, she says, the message of salvation has been preached in all ages, but this message is part of the gospel which could only be proclaimed in the very last days, for only then would it be true that the hour of judgment has come. The prophecies present a succession of events leading down to the opening of the judgment. This is especially true of the book of Daniel. But that part of the prophecy which related to the last days, Daniel was bidden to close up and to seal to the time of the end. But at the time of the end, says the prophet, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. So what parts of Daniel were sealed that we're talking about here in Revelation 10 then? Only those parts of Daniel that we're talking about events to happen after 1798, or when the time of the end started. Specifically, what was going to happen at the end of the 2300 years. The judgment starting in heaven. So in Revelation 10, the little book is in the angels' hands. It was sealed, now it's open. And it has to do with the time of the end, and more accurately, the time when the judgment will start. However, the event that Daniel 8.14 predicted to happen in 1844 was not, as people thought, the second coming of Christ. Remember, this part of Daniel's prophecy was just starting to be studied. Because all this is happening, all these people were starting to study this in the early 1800s, just after the time of the end started, according to the Bible. This part of Daniel's prophecy was just starting to be studied and understood, and so it can't be a very big surprise to us that they initially got it wrong. And in fact, as you read Revelation 10, what do you learn? That God even predicted that they would get it wrong. Many people say to us as Adventists, Oh, you just come from a group who set a date for Christ's coming and got it wrong, so you're trying to figure out how to get around that now and make it right. Have you ever heard that before? I propose that God let it be misunderstood and gotten wrong because he predicted that that would happen. And he predicted that that would happen and let it happen for a specific purpose. And that's for an impetus into further study so that they would get the right message of the right event and then be able to proclaim that to the world. My question when I was thinking about these things is, what took you guys so long? I mean, going through the list that we did in Daniel, if you read over that list, and every single chapter is talking about judgment, 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 What took you so long? But don't we do the same thing? Sometimes we'll need to read the same thing three and four and five times before all. Oh, yeah, now I understand what it means. What they thought was the coming of Christ was in reality Christ starting the judgment. But the great disappointment caused by learning that the sanctuary being cleansed wasn't Christ coming again turned into a message that John was told had to be spread to the whole world. That message was the coming judgment in heaven, how everyone has to be warned of that event so that they can see the nearness of the end and be prepared by accepting Christ's mission that he did for us. So what is the message that we need to take to the world? We need to take the message of the judgment happening in heaven to the world to help people understand the nearness of time and that they need to make a decision now to follow God. The sweet taste of expecting Christ's second coming was turned into bitter disappointment when he didn't. But that was supposed to happen. It was predicted. The disappointment was to be the impetus to take the important message, the most important message, almost for this time anyway, to the world. The prophecy of Daniel 8.14 was to be understood and preached by the last day church to the world. Now I know pastors who have said, All I want to do is preach God's love and his grace. Is there anything wrong with God's love and his grace? No, that's the central core of our relationship with God. But when you refuse to teach other things that are in the Bible, especially the judgment hour message, you're basically going against what God predicted and wanted us to do in the last days. There's a lot of other churches out there that preach God's grace, aren't there? There's a lot of other churches out there that preach God's love. We'd be one among many. But God wanted His church in the end to preach a specific message of warning to the world that nobody else is preaching. Doesn't mean that you get rid of the other stuff. It just means that there's a specific task that He has given us that nobody else is doing. And I want us to realize that that is one of our major tasks as a church in these last days. If we don't do it, it's like Christ in the Bible said, if you don't do it, what will happen? The stones will cry out and do it. So let's remember what our task is. Remember last week we talked a little bit about how the Old Testament talks about a lot of literal things, including literal Israel and... And the literal Jerusalem and all those things having to do with God's people. And now in the New Testament, many of those same things were talked about in a spiritual way. Revelation 10 talks about the great disappointment and what was happening, what was was to happen at the very end of time in the way of understanding the judgment hour message. And so, the great disappointment happened, 1844. But what started to happen then, in 1844? What Christ was doing in heaven. Go to chapter 11, to prove this. Chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, we'll read together. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, "'Rise, measure the temple of God.' And the an altar and them that worship therein. But the court with his, which is without the temple, leave out. Don't measure that, for that's to the Gentiles. And if you know in Revelation, whenever it talks about Gentiles, it's talking about the wicked. Not just people who aren't Jews, but the wicked. So if you read this, what does the temple of God mean? If you read 1 Corinthians, maybe you want to write these down and read these after church. 1 Corinthians 6.19, 1 Corinthians 3.16, 2 Corinthians 6.16, they all talk about the temple of God as being his church. The people and his church. So when he's coming here in verse 1 of chapter 11 to measure the temple of God, what is he coming to do? He's coming to measure us. And in fact, the word measure as given there is another word for judge. So, the very next verse, after chapter 10, where he's saying that God has opened up this little book of prophecy to help us understand that the judgment is coming, the next verse, the judgment is happening. It's already starting to happen. If the judgment hour message is our task to take to the world, there's another message that has to go along with it. If you have a trial and you're going through a judgment, what is the basis for a trial? What's that? Okay, okay, what has to be the basis for every trial? A law. If there's no laws, there's no trials, right? You didn't do anything wrong. So if the judgment hour our message is to be our task to take to the world, there has to be something else that goes along with it. And in verse 19 of Revelation 11, The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Testament, whatever your version says. What is in the Ark of the Testament? The law. Here it says the temple of God was opened. He's starting to see the judgment take place in the most holy place. And in the center part of that, and the judgment takes place based on that law within the Ark of the Covenant. And what's the center portion of the law? Especially for the last days? We know it's the Sabbath commandment. The rest of them people have no problem with. The Sabbath commandment is the one that they have a problem with. Thus, our own church came into being for a twofold purpose to warn the world of the coming judgment and to restore the Sabbath to its rightful place among Christians of all lands. Yes, we can preach God's love. Yes, we can preach about grace. Yes, we can preach about the state of the dead and all kinds of other things, which we do, and I'm happy we do. But if we fail or refuse to proclaim the judgment our message and the Sabbath, we have failed to do what the Bible here in Revelation 10 and 11 has asked us to do. Now, in conclusion, I want to go just a few more chapters to Revelation 14. And I'm going to read two verses, and I want you to tell me if you see anything that we've just talked about in there. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. We know these verses well. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. So, is this another message? It's another message that we see being proclaimed. Having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. And to who? Just what? Chapter 10 already said that this message this is go to land and sea, everybody. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him for what? Hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water, which is what? It's a direct quote from the Sabbath commandment. So, I want us to understand that there's many things that we can share with our neighbors and friends. God's grace, God's love, all the things we've talked about. But if we don't also give the message to the world of His judgment and the Sabbath, we're falling short of what God asks us to do. And so as we have opportunity to do that, I hope that each of us will study it enough and be familiar with that enough that we can share it with our neighbors. And if nothing else, lead them to someone who can explain it so that they know the severity of that message, saying, the judgment is happening already, it's going to end soon, and if you're not prepared, it will end badly. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we're thankful for the message that you have given to us. We know that... You are the one who brought this message down to us through Christ. Give us the opportunity. Give us the wisdom. Give us the energy to be able to help people understand that time is very short. That judgment is almost ready to be finished. And that they need to, that we need to, that everyone needs to be prepared. And as we've talked about it, judgment isn't scary, Father if we know that we are innocent and on the right side. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Be with us, Father, as we go our separate ways. May we come again next Sabbath, having been given opportunity to witness for thee. And as you protect us and guide us during this week, may we thank you and may we be forever uh, thankful in the way that we would pattern our lives after what you do for us. Save us in that coming day when the judgment does end because we know we have not only the best counselor but we also have the best judge we ask in Jesus name, Amen